It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I was just saying how I have so many directions to go in with my two wonderful guests today, Charles and Daryl, that it's a little hard to choose where to start, but I'm going to lean towards something I feel most curious about in this moment, which is the difference between acknowledgement and empathy. Because when I read this line, which is in an email as we were setting up this recording today... I found myself wondering, hmm, what does that mean? I don't know if I've ever pondered that before. So what is the difference between the two and why does it matter? I'm going to let the author speak to that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I think about acknowledgement, it's basically, from my view, it's like you're, okay, I give you an example. You may tell me something about how you're feeling in the moment, right? I'm feeling sad today. And if I acknowledge it, I say to myself, okay, Whitney's not feeling in her best today. She's, you know, she's not in the place where she'd like to be. She's feeling sad today. That's just a fact. But if I have empathy for that, right? If I hear that and I go, wow, I'm feeling what she's feeling. I'm sort of sitting in her shoes today and I'm I'm accepting that how she feels is not where she would like to be And that for me allows me to connect with her in a way where I'm truly empathetic to what's going on with her in her world. Yeah, that makes sense. The connection where I I can feel that on your behalf versus I just hear you, but there's no connection to it. And do you feel like we have an issue right now where more people are leaning towards the acknowledgement than the empathetic side? Or do you feel like we do have a good amount of empathy as a society? I would say neither. I don't think that we're acknowledging because I think we are quick to turn off our sensitivities to just about anything that happens, right? We don't we don't view facts as facts anymore. We f- view things through the lens that we choose to see them or hear them. If you can't get to acknowledgement there, there's no way you ever get the empathy. Would you add anything to that, Daryl? How do you feel? No, I agree with Charles. I think in large part, I don't want to speak in terms of a monolith in terms of society, but we've become more dismissive. So I don't think there is uh, largely acknowledgement, which I think leads to empathy. So I, I look at them as a sort of a stair step. And we are so busy canceling and dismissing that I'm not sure we're working towards acknowledgement the way uh, society should be. And again, I don't want to speak in terms of a monolith because there's always exceptions, but in large part. And so do you think we're still heading in the opposite direction or can we swing around and start creating more acknowledgement? And if so, how do we get there? Or do we have to kind of go through a phase of the opposite direction first before we change course? Well, I think two things can be true. We're moving in the opposite direction. I think we can always decide to move in a different direction. But what that requires is not necessarily what what a large part of society is thirsting for. So all of the movements 
to emotional reactions are very obvious. We don't need to start calling names or political parties, et cetera. We can see it happening every single day. So my question becomes who or what would be the catalyst for any shift? Because thinking about it isn't enough. Talking about it isn't enough. It has to actually be done. And that takes bravery. It takes courage. It takes taking your eye off the ball of something else and shifting it to this oftentimes. And not a lot of us have the capacity to do that. And that kind of ties into something else I know you're passionate about, which is why human flourishing is more critical than happiness. Mm-hmm. And, and so as you're sharing this, I'm thinking, does creating more empathy lead to the type of human flourishing that the two of you are examining and hoping for? You know, I'll be quick on this one, Charles. I think empathy isn't the first thing that comes to mind when I think about human flourishing, quite honestly. I look at it through the lens of spirituality, emotional stability and management, physical health, financial health. These things are first and foremost when it comes to human flourishing. And the distinction, obviously, with that and happiness, happiness is sort of a temporary mindset. So if you're a drug addict, you can find happiness, especially when you get that fix. But you're not flourishing by any sense of the word. So flourishing is self-optimization, self-actualization. So when I think about empathy as it relates to that, that's not one of the first characteristics that come to mind for me. It has to do with internal realization, first and foremost. And something you talked about with one of your past guests, her name was Jovanka, when you talked about a colonized mindset. It's escaping a colonized mindset. And that happens at the individual level. So when we talk about that, I don't go to empathy. I'm not saying it's not important, but that's not where my head goes initially. Fascinating. To jump in, I think we're a long ways from empathy. To me, when I think about human flourishing, I think more along the lines of well-being, right? What are the things that we can achieve in life or what are the things that we can do for purpose, for meaning, for social interactions that are that are positive and uplifting? And having this overall satisfaction with where we are in life. And sometimes it means having access to certain things, sometimes it's resources. Uh, Sometimes it's the ability to, quite frankly, just have a roof over your head. It can be as, uh, you know, as simple, as complex as individuals need for how they like to live life or how they feel like their lives need to go. So, but I think you have to have that basic achievement of well-being, personal well-being, self, you know, that's sort of Maslow's hierarchy, right? You take care of self first. And I think once you're able to have that own that that own self-revelation around what that means for you, then hopefully that can lead to empathy for others. You know, but I think you have to begin with what it takes for you to achieve, you know, some level of flourishing that allows you to see other people in a different light. And it's interesting in the context of how we're not quite going towards empathy right now. And I wonder, are we not because the average person doesn't feel like they're flourishing? And I'm also curious, is flourishing a state of mind or circumstance? Because what could feel like flourishing to one person may not feel like that to another. And there are certain people who may never feel satisfied with what they have. They always want more. And so is that part of how hard it is to get to a place of empathy for others? Because we can't even fully perhaps even empathize with ourselves. You know, we're always feeling bad about ourselves. We're beating ourselves up, uh, you know, and this speaking very general terms, it's certainly not everybody, but 
it seems to me like a lot of people are struggling with self-hatred and loathing and all these intense emotions. So maybe that does explain why empathy is so tough. Well, we're probably going to get uh, controversial really quickly. So I think a lot of white people are, and maybe they should be. If you're a black person or a black youth and you're decolonizing your mindset, empathy probably isn't the first trait to get you there. It's self-respect, self-actualization, confidence. It's those things that tend to be paramount in decolonizing the way you think, knowing nothing about Africa, knowing nothing but Christianity, knowing nothing but... So empathy tends to enter into play for someone oftentimes who's operated in privilege. So I'm not saying you can't be empathetic when you're decolonizing your mindset, but the importance of empathy often lies with those who look like you. And maybe it should be important to you. I'm not so sure when we're talking about folks that maybe look like or grew up like Charles and I, that characteristic is something that's pounded into us versus you got to get ready to take on the world and you're going to get your ass busted. Yeah, I think there's a prioritization, right? And taking care of yourself, quite frankly, surviving in a lot of instances is the priority, right? And so you're trying to figure out how you move through this world and through this life where your casualties are as few as possible, right? Because otherwise you can find yourself in situations that a lot of people a lot of, particularly a lot of black men find themselves in scenarios in life where they would have never envisioned that this is where life would take them at the end of the day. But it's all about certain circumstances and situations. And, you know, there's all these poundings that come into your brain when you're a young child about what life will be like for you and what you have to anticipate. And if it's not provided in the right setting, it can be counterproductive. And I think for Daryl and I, you know, having the opportunity to have, you know, loving family members in our lives who could sort of moved us along in a direction that helped us to thrive, right? And become our best selves, or at least to have a path to start to look for what we could become. It's all inward. You're thinking about you, right? And it's not until you feel like you've gotten to a place where now I can focus on what it's about to do things for others. And who knows what that takes? I mean, you know, I'm in my 50s and it wasn't always this way where I wanted to have empathy and do other things for people that I could help support and help build what they wanted their futures to look like. It took a while to get there. It took a long while to get there. It's just a different path. It's really enlightening to hear this because, you know, it also goes to show the different mentality that I may have as a white woman, where I felt like I was raised as a people pleaser. It was, it was like, think about others before you think about yourself. You know, it's always about prioritizing somebody else. And I wonder sometimes, like, did I just get trained into thinking, like, that's the way forward, that's the way to success? And if I'm understanding correctly, are you saying that you were raised differently to put yourself first and others second or just put yourself first and then maybe other or like were there no. differences like that? When I have that view, it's about taking care of self, not to the, um, the detriment of others, but no trash of the imagination. Yeah. And also to not get preoccupied 
with being concerned about how someone mm-hmm. feels who may not have their best interest at heart. That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Ah, because yeah. it's oftentimes a guessing game when you're a kid. I've had teachers who are the most racist people you've ever wanted to come across. And they made it a point when I was in fourth grade to be very clear that I was different than all the white kids in the class. So why would I be preoccupied with empathy, right? The white kids in class can afford to do that. May I ask, were you raised with both parents? Yes. So at the end of the day, you probably felt like dad was at home and may take care of things. So your empathy was okay. You could get a little preoccupied with that. I'm not saying that there aren't other dangers to that. I personally didn't have that luxury. And I'll be honest with you, some of my best coaches and teachers, I'm not sure how much empathy they have for me. I don't know, but I was I didn't care. So empathy tends to be paramount and critical for those who are privileged enough to prioritize it. You know, it's interesting. And I just want to tack on to, to what DJ just shared when he talked about coaches and teachers. And if I can speculate just for a moment, and I'm just sort of making a broad sweeping speculation for sure. But if there wasn't empathy there, it wasn't that they didn't care about what happened to him at the end of the day. It was about not having the luxury of being preoccupied about it. The luxury was, or in the moment, here's what he needs to know. Here's what information I need to provide him to get to this next step and stage in life and for him to be safe, for him to be able to follow a path that'll allow him to thrive. And I can't get emotional about what that is. I have to give it to him in his raw form, right? And move him along for his good. Doesn't mean that there's no caring involved. It means that the empathy, if he doesn't like the way it was shared or if he felt bad about it, we, we don't necessarily focus on that in that moment. We have to focus on what are the things you need to know to move yourself along in life and, and thrive and ultimately flourish. Because inevitably, part of your journey, and I speak specifically about being a young black kid who at times was in projects and at times, is handling situations where you aren't treated with empathy. You need to be very equipped for that. So the focus on empathy, yeah, it's just, I think it's for a subset of society who is probably rightfully so harboring some guilt. And I'm not saying empathy doesn't have a a purpose and isn't a muscle we should all be building, but it's all about prioritization. And, you know, when you're coming from certain environments, I'm not saying all black kids have it bad and all that. I just know my journey and it was filled with love, but it also had its challenges. Empathy wasn't something we talked about at the dinner table. Yeah. And when I think about my own upbringing and look, my parents have done a ton for me in life and have loved me and supported me in so many ways. But empathy wasn't this great big conversation. I learned about empathy probably in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, just through my own exploration of being more conscious and aware and you know, knowing that life is bigger than just my little world and what impact I want to have on others. That's how I learned about empathy. Empathy wasn't a part of the conversation growing up in any sort of way. And again, it doesn't minimize the love and care. It's just a different set of circumstances that my folks were aware of that I would encounter that I couldn't afford to get wrapped up in this trap of empathy or these feelings that you know others don't have for you. And and again, you know, Whitney, not to say that we aren't caring people, very much so. And I think love is very simple. It's wanting what's best for someone. It's that simple. Empathy to me takes on other characteristics. So I try to operate with love regardless. And I was raised to do that. 
but specifically empathy. I couldn't even tell you when I first heard that word. And I, I don't use it a lot today. And I've taught in colleges and I've had teams of 300. Charles owns his own company. When I think about critical competencies, I don't know where that stacks. Now, some old employees may come back and say, ah, that's why. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I don't love you. But we got a job to do. Yeah. Well, first of all, this leads to a lot of different thoughts for me because I, I often reflect on coaching and education in general, as YouTube touched upon in the racism that I am learning more and more is in there, especially in health and wellness. You know, like the history of racism there is disturbing to me and I don't want to take part in it as much as I, I can't anymore. And so when you're saying things like this, I'm just looking at these things that I've been taught over and over again. And then to step away and realize, well, not everybody is being taught that way, but that also might not be at a priority for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, an issue in the coaching world from my perspective. And I'm curious of your perspectives on how a lack of even awareness of different culture and just our differences in our circumstances. When I look at the coaching industry, I feel like a lot of it is a one size fits all approach. And it seems like a lot of the big coaches out there, from what I'm witnessing, I'm curious if, if you see it differently, but I see a lot of white men and then young white women becoming coaches in various fields. And I wonder how much of their whiteness is impacting the things that they're teaching and encouraging people. And then the ripple effect that that just has on everybody else who keeps hearing these same messages reiterated over and over again. Do you see it that way or do you witness it differently? Charles, do you want to respond? You know, I feel like the, these experiences are very different, I think, for different people, right? And I, I do think that if you're a white male or a white female coach, it bleeds into everything, quite frankly, beyond coaching, opportunities in life, whatever you want to call it. But I think the way you show up or the, way, the opportunity that you have to show up is very different. And I think that you can have a conversation that's very different. I think people hear you very different. I think that all these things impact someone's ability to be effective or successful in this line, right? And so I think part of it is, you know, how do you translate to others when you share your story, or you share your perspectives, or you share your background, your experience, all those things that shape others in, in hopefully a way to help them be better. I think people take it differently depending on who it comes from. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that's very well put, Charles. And I think you know, Whitney, it's always interesting to me how I would argue that this wellness industry is predominantly. I think coaching and wellness are sort of maybe two different things, but there are a lot of white women who have taken the lead in the wellness movement. My question is always, how much do you know about black people, and how do you know what well looks like for them? So that's where I start. That's where my question starts. Because otherwise we're moving into another, I'll call it public school system that doesn't want to acknowledge certain things, doesn't understand certain things, doesn't want to address certain things. So honestly, I, you know, in my coaching and consulting and teaching, I have my formula. I don't get too intoxicated by what anybody else is doing unless it somehow intercedes with what I'm doing. But yeah, I, I do think there are a lot of questions as it relates to wellness and coaching, specifically as it relates to demographics and psychographics. 
And what about in terms of business coaching? Do you see similar issues there? Because, for example, a lot of the messaging I was taught came from white men when I was studying entrepreneurship, business, marketing, all of that. Also white women, but it seemed like their mentors were white men, right? So as I step back and try to examine, like, how much is this shaped by their whiteness? And I see a lot of people saying, if you just do this, you'll get that right? If you just follow these steps, you're going to get this result. But now I'm not so sure that's true because if people are coming from different circumstances, you have to take that into consideration, in my opinion. But I'm curious if you agree. I mean, we have to look at the privilege. We have to look at the financial circumstances, the limitations, the lack of resources that some people have. And it's not always a race issue, but I certainly think that there's patterns there. And when it's just a group of white people saying, well, I did this, like you should be able to as well, then it it also comes down to like this mentality that if, if it doesn't work for you, then you're the failure. Well, you know, I think part of that conversation is just, you know, first of all, it's just, it's a much bigger conversation when we start thinking about systemic racism and you can look at every field, you can look at education, you can look at housing, you can look at employment, Right. And so there's a reason why if you're looking at coaches and mentors in the business world, well, look, our opportunities in a lot of respects haven't been the same because the opportunities haven't been the same. And those are because if you can't have decent education, right, if if that's not ground level one, if you can't have access to a roof over your head, like housing that is local, housing that doesn't require you to travel 30, 45 minutes to get to school or get to work, right? And then the other side of that coin is healthcare, access to quality healthcare, social determinants of health. All these things impact the ability to have these notions of, I want to be an entrepreneur, or I have this entrepreneurial experience that I now can pass down to others and be of help, right? That's a real, the pond of people who are able to do that, who look like DJ and I, who've had these experiences, don't get me wrong. I mean, you've got a lot of successful people of color that do well in business and certainly are able to hold their own in terms of what they've accomplished. But when it comes time to talk about how we translate that to others who look like us and to be able to help, there's just not many in the field. DJ is one of the few that I know who brings this strong track record where what he's talking, he has lived. And so the experience base that he can share comes from an authentic place and true leadership, not many, not many people like that. And so therefore you do only have these other models of white women and white men to look to. And and my question for those folks all the time is if you want to impact another audience, how much are you willing to understand about that audience? And really truly to DJ's point earlier, you know, but his question is how much do you know about this group? How much time have you taken to really understand the root cause of where people sit and why those things And what are those elements that impact those people so that when you are interacting, you have a grounding that is not based upon the things that you hear or see or your perceptions or what society tells you? Very well said, Charles. I think, you know, there are critical concepts that aren't necessarily related to construct of race. So sense-making is a concept that precedes decision-making. Sense-making is a process we all go through. It can be two seconds. It can be two days to create paradigms and perspectives that allow us to make decisions. So you learning that from white men 
may not have implications beyond the fact and the process and the concept. But when it comes to something like religion, it's a whole new ball game. And not understanding the roots of Christianity and the trail back to Africa is very critical for Black people. Maybe not so much for others right now, but it goes back to the mindset and the, the, the colonization of the mindset that you focused on in a prior podcast that I thought was really interesting. And I think that has a lot of tentacles that obviously you can't get to in an hour. But that's when it becomes critical. And we talk about these institutions that become, quote unquote, fact. I'll share a quick story with you, Whitney, and it's very relevant. Charles and I were at dinner and we were with a couple and they were white, white male, white female. And she spent a lot of time talking about how important Christianity was to her. And she based everything on Christianity that she did in her life. Don't necessarily believe that, but that's what she said. So for her, race didn't matter. So, okay, if you believe that, then you believe in Adam and Eve. Yeah, sure. What do you think they look like? Well, you know, uh, well, what do they have to look like if I exist and Charles exists? They can't look like you because you can never get that from that. But through processes, you can get your skin tone from mine. It can happen. My point is, as opposed to accepting that within the paradigm that she was operating in, I think now it may be, well, do I believe in Christianity? I don't know what she went home with. I haven't talked to her since then. But the whole paradigm was fucked up now. These are the things that we can't just afford to accept and say we want to be aware and we want to preach wellness and we want to teach and we want to help. It has to go back that far. Otherwise, you continue to bury your head in the sand because you're not willing to accept the prescription, right? There's a, there's a factual prescription in that. If you accept it the way it is, it changes everything you've ever believed. But if you accept it, then that's the opportunity to start believing, thinking different things and having a different perspective about others and about the way you see and perceive the world. But if you're not, there's no way you get there, right? If you're not willing to face history in a way that is reflective and a lot of ways instructive, then, then there's just no point. You want to talk about getting the empathy. The road is closed. Yeah. And I, you know, just for the record, when we talk about Christianity, for me, it's it's one of the greatest stories ever told. If we really want to understand the roots of it and the history of it, we got to go much further back than the purveyors of Christianity have gone. Messages and the things mm -hmm. that we take as truth and factual mm -hmm. and again, like the impact that the repeated messages we get, whether that's in a religious setting growing up, you know, you have to examine like, who are the other people there with you at church? Who are the other people in your classroom when you were a child? Like, how are they being treated? Who are your teachers? I mean, these are the things as mm -hmm. I have really opened my eyes to colonization, racism issues. I just feel I do. I actually do have to walk backwards through my own life and examine like, where did these messages come from? Who was saying them to me? Where did I learn them? And what else am I not seeing? And the more I've dug into it, I just feel like I missed out on so many angles of life and different types of people. And I've had to personally just continue to walk outside of that and be purposeful in that. And it's revealing a lot of ignorance within myself that I, I'm comfortable acknowledging. <laughs> now, but I'm so grateful for conversations like this that point out that ignorance, as I said to you before we started recording, because it would never have occurred to me that people don't prioritize empathy, you know? Well, 
or that they're even conditioned to. Because I think for you, it sounds like it was a conditioning. And the question becomes why? Yeah. You know, as a white woman, why are you conditioned to be empathetic and to whom? Who, who did that serve? I think we probably know. Yeah. The answer to that. <laughs> well, I would love to know. Who do you think that serves? Well, well you, you could answer that. I would have to ask, you know, who's in your circle? Who's your partner? How homogenous is that? All of those questions, you know, you would have to answer. But oftentimes, so we can extend it to Christianity. There was a purpose in the preaching of Christianity, especially in wanting uh, people of African descent to adopt it. And a lot of that had to do with oppression. So this is not me being pro, anti or whatever Christianity, but. Well, I mean, it was a means to accept the condition, right? And not talk about Africa, right? No discussion of it. So then when the symbolism came into play, you saw how that manifested. I was, Charles and I talked about this. I grew up in an AME, a Methodist church, and there was not one black symbol related to God, whether it was angels, Jesus, God, none of it. And ain't nothing but black folks in there. Huh? Like, what are we doing? Some deep shit. It is. And, you know, it leads back to a question that came up in topics to discuss today, which is, well, two things. One is how can we convert our circumstances? And two is how can we empower each other despite our differences? So if our circumstances, do you think our circumstances come from our differences or differences create our circumstances? And if so, either way, can we convert them? Can we change them? And then how can we help each other do that? I feel like I've been running my mouth, Charles, so I'll follow up after you go. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. I'm really I'm trying to, to, to sort of put that in some sort of. So I'll jump in and I'll say it's both. I think both happen. I don't think it's an either or. I think two things can be true. And I think both happen. Differences can lead to circumstances. Circumstances can lead to differences. But the question is always at the end of the day to me, who has the decision rights on what these differences mean and what these circumstances mean? And if we take it to social justice and all, we can start to see how all of that plays out. But I, I think it happens uh, within both dimensions. Yeah, I don't know if I can argue with that. I think the one thing I do think is certainly a phenomenon is that the differences create the opportunity for circumstances to not be as they likely should, right? Because when you're starting out from a different place, all your perspectives are just clearly not in the same lane. And so how you behave, how you treat others, all those things are determined by your perspectives on difference, which creates that whole dynamic that creates a completely different set of circumstances for others. And I do think that who has the leverage in that makes a big difference. And that also leads back to the initial topic of acknowledgement. Do you feel like it's helpful to acknowledge differences? Because I feel like some people don't want to acknowledge difference. They don't want to treat someone different. They want to create equality and inclusivity. So do you feel like differences need to be acknowledged in order to create inclusivity and equality? Or should we just try to treat everybody the same, even if they aren't? Well, I've worked in and I've consulted for cultures that I wouldn't want to be treated like anybody in that culture. So I'm not looking for equality or inclusion. What I would say is with difference often comes uniqueness and unique forms of talent. So when someone says, I don't see color, we first of all, we know that's a lie. Second of all, maybe you should. And if you don't understand the concept of melanin and what it is and how important it is, then you'll probably never understand me. And that's also extremely deep. So 
I think the diversity world has fallen victim to a lot of other worlds and industries where the face of it has become white again, whether that's the teachings or the students or the who's being served by it. So I'm on a different journey as it relates to diversity right now, even in my practice. Less and less am I concerned about trying to convince versus empower. And I'm talking about empowering folks who need to be empowered, not who are in power. Yeah, I've never been one who thought that you'd treat people the same because, I mean, think about it. I have three kids and they're all very different, right? And so you have to treat them different based upon their own set of unique needs and what's unique about them as people, right? And so I have to teach them or show them what life looks like for them on their own terms, not on your brother's terms, not on your sister's terms, but for that unique individual. And I think that's how we have to approach everyone, right? And I think we have to approach people from a perspective of, you know, you, you want to take people from where they are in the moment. And then let's go from there. Where do we need to go? What needs to happen? How do we help? How do we impact you in a way that allows you to thrive, allows you to flourish and have the best life possible for you, for your own well-being, right? For your own life satisfaction. That's where I look at it from. And then if you do that, you take care of all the other things, right? You take care of what it means to be different or have a different race. And, you know, DJ's point about seeing color. I mean, if you don't see me, you don't see my uniqueness about what it is that I need in life, right? That's important to me in life. But if you start with that basic core element of who I am as a person and individual and what my unique needs are, that may be very similar to DJ, but maybe be very different, right? Let's start there. Yeah, I like that too. I'm not a fan of that one size fits all. I think that's also a helpful thing for me to reflect on after this conversation, because I have felt like, oh, we got to treat everybody equal, right? Like that's just like, I kept hearing that my whole life, equality, equality. And I felt like this feels good. This feels right. But the more I think about it, it doesn't make sense because if we treat everyone the same, then what if the way that they're being treated doesn't work for them? Well, I think Whitney, I think the distinction that I just want to call out, I think equality in the broader sense of the word is extremely important because again, you know, Black folks weren't granted that. So there's always been this fight for just a baseline level of respect that white folks got, whether that was from a legal perspective, constitutional perspective, whatever it is. So equality is very important. When we start to talk about it in more of a microcosm, to the extent that we make assumptions about where people are and we're all starting from the same point on the track, your color doesn't really matter. Then that sometimes insinuates you can't learn from me. And that's where it starts to get dangerous. Thank you for that. The way that the two of you articulate this is really helpful and just giving me so much to reflect upon. I feel like this is a teaser for your podcast because we're, <laughs> we've run out of time today. And like you said, there I mean, these subject matters are deep and we're just digging into them. But that does lead us to a great opportunity to encourage listeners who want to hear more from the two of you to go to your podcast. And what would you say the overarching topics you cover? I imagine similar to this and and these things are addressed regularly on your show? Yeah. um, Race, business, culture, human wellness, human flourishing, mental wellness, entrepreneurship, we cover it all. And we do it through fascinating stories and journeys about people who 
have been really successful and some who have failed. And I don't mean failed in terms of never to be seen again, but they learned from not winning. So we try to do it all. You, you asked me prior to us being on camera here, you know, Charles and I are, you know, different human beings, but we have a common thread that has allowed us to birth something that I think is critical to both of us as individuals, as a team, and then from broader set of society. And I think I couldn't be happier about the path we're on. And, you know, you can't get to everything in a podcast, but we're definitely trying to. Yeah, I think it's the richness of these stories that we get to embark on with these conversations with the guests on our show. And I I never fail to learn something, right, which fills me up because I'm one person who loves learning. I consider myself to be a lifelong learner. And so hearing people's stories and then weaving those into the dialogue of the day around things that are important to us. And typically we somehow come, come into these dialogues around those pillars that DJ mentioned. And they're interwoven into the conversation because we all experience them, right? We all are a part of culture. We're all uh, in some ways, at least a lot of people that are on the on the show are connected to business in some way. We all have an occupation of some sort, no matter just what we do, uh, which leads into the thread around business. And then, you know, as we look at the other things that are really important to us, those things are illuminated and those conversations become so rich. For me, as I think about where I am in my life is one of the things that I've truly value and so grateful that one that, that DJ and I got the opportunity to meet and establish this, this brotherhood. I think it's beyond a friendship, but also to bring these these conversations to uh, to a larger audience that, that are just beyond the, the back patio at his house or my house. But we're we're having the opportunity to share with others and, and you people like you. So thank you for having us. Your format is wonderful, Whitney. I had a, the opportunity to watch several of your podcasts. and uh, It's very inspiring. Yeah, it is. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you for being here. I love the show name, The Conscious Vibe, that you picked. It definitely piques my interest. And just after speaking with you today, I'm, I'm so hooked. <laughs> I want, we'll I'm to, like, I got, I got more. I need we'll more. We'll have to have you uh, on the show. Is that, what, is that what I'm hearing? Count me in for that for sure, but also count me in as a listener because I, the way that the two of you articulate and flow with each other and bring on guests that cover all these different topics that are so important. And, and it's all about raising perspective and mm-hmm. learning. That, uh, similarly, I, I am a sucker for information and getting it from different sources. It's just become a bigger aim of mine, you know, as, as I look at the sources of information I've had in the past, I, I realized to a big point that was brought up today that it's so crucial to hear from different perspectives and broaden these sources because if you don't understand history and you don't understand how people are impacted differently, it's really tough to, well, I guess you're kind of cutting people out of the information mm-hmm. you're sharing because then you're just you can only share what what you know to a certain extent. And if you don't know what other people are experiencing in life, you're... you're... And oftentimes sharing what you think you know. And to sort Mm -hmm. of end where we started, I think, you know, if you don't have any of those things, it's hard to have really any sort of authentic empathy for anyone. I don't know how you do that without that awareness or that understanding. Absolutely. Well, thank you for starting the dialogue to be continued. 
perhaps on your show. Absolutely. I will link to the conscious vibe for the listeners of this show and the links to the rest of your wonderful work will be over in the show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com in the podcast show notes. There's a full transcript. There'll be a video, which I really encourage watching over there just to get more of a a broadened experience of this conversation today and uh, see Charles and Daryl's wonderful faces. I, I love your photos, by the way, when I, before I even got on camera with you, just, you both convey this melanin. great feeling for me. Uh, it's melanin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> is that what it is? Why are you turning red? <laughs> oh man, that's not what I was thinking. But you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm colorblind. So uh, no, but you two both have the conscious vibe. That's what I'm going to call it. I'm saying oh, you have a, a great vibe that feels very conscious. <laughs> so <laughs> Thank thanks again. And for the listener, please visit wellevator.com to get those links so you can check out their show too. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.